What story are you telling? Whether you're intentional about it or not, you have an audience and they think in story. The Doug Thompson podcast features diverse storytellers sharing their practical tips for telling the story they need others to envision and trust in order to take a new action. Here's your host, Doug Thompson. Hi, and welcome to this weird episode of the Doug Thompson podcast. This week, my guest is Barry Rubin. And the odd thing about this is two previous attempts at recording failed due to technology, uh, microphone, streaming service, what have you. Finally, just before Thanksgiving, we had to come in and throw up a, um, well, not throw up. We, <laughs> we had to come in and we sort of joined this story in progress where Barry is telling about some challenges she had with, with her car, winning a car, doing some other things. So we're joining a story in progress. I appreciate <laughs> Please just listen to this episode because with all the challenges that happen, we've still made it happen. And Barry's got a story that's really worth telling. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this very strange episode of the Doug Thompson podcast. Um, I, got a, I got a job in real estate and um, the managing director of the firm that I was working at said, I'm going to train you to be a salesperson. You're going to be great. You're a natural in sales. And I get, my car got hit by somebody. I got T-boned and it took six months for them to fix my car because they couldn't find a door. So the day I got my car back, he laid me off because it was also the same time that the bottom fell out of the commercial real estate market. So I said, let me go do something else that tied me over. And I got a job in a department store selling makeup. And the rest is history. So while I was living in L.A., uh, I, I got married and then I got divorced. So when I got divorced, I knew that everybody was going to tell me, you should move back home, you should move back home. And I didn't want to hear, I told you so. So I said, I've got to do something in LA that you can't do anywhere else and make it work because I am not going back to New Jersey. So I started telling everybody that I was a freelance makeup artist because now I had five years of training from three of the top cosmetics company in the world. So, uh, and I just, after I made that decision, about a week later, I went to a dinner party with some Indian producer. Somehow I got invited and the woman sitting next to me and I were chatting and she asked me what I did. And I said, I'm a freelance makeup artist. She goes, what a coincidence. My friend has a photo shoot scheduled for tomorrow and we're freaking out because our makeup artist canceled. Are you available? I said, Sure. And I said, oh, gosh, now I better walk the walk. Um, so I did that photo shoot with them. And as it turns out, her friend is an amazing, amazing photographer who had lived in Paris for 20 something years. He was an expat. He worked with all the French fashion magazines. And he even in the late 80s had done a series of photographs for the L'Oreal hair color packaging. To this day, those pictures are still on the box. He is the master of natural lighting. And I just, I got him with the right person at the right time. And I worked with him for about uh, almost 10 years. 
doing headshots. And then I started dabbling in um, film and television and commercials. And again, you know, every career has its ups and downs. Right when I decided to be this freelance makeup artist, there was strike after strike after strike and the work just kept going to Canada. And I wasn't in the union, so I was scrambling for all these non-union gigs and low paying stuff and you know work for pictures, which is a scam. So I said, I gotta do something else. And I decided with all of my background in skincare, you know what, I'm going to get my aesthetics license and I'm going to go and just sell skincare and maybe work for a plastic surgeon. So I did that for a couple of years, the skincare, I worked at a five-star hotel and I ran the facial department in the spa. And then September 11th happened. So I lost my job again. I was like, oh, what can I do now? So this time I said, yes, I am going to go sell plastic surgery. And I started looking for doctors that had opportunities for patient counselors and patient educators. And I answered a blind ad back then from Craigslist. <laughs> and it said, we're looking for a patient concierge in our upscale Beverly Hills surgical practice. So I just assumed, I assumed that it was uh plastic surgery or an aesthetics practice. And I showed up for the interview because they did want to meet with me. And to my absolute surprise, it was an ophthalmology office. So that is how I landed in ophthalmology. And the practice administrator saw my skills, saw my personality, saw my background and said, oh my gosh, we have to create a job for you. The job that you applied for to, you know, no, we're going to use your talents. And she created a position for me as the optometric liaison and patient counselor. And I worked for them for three years and he was a real envelope pusher. He always wanted to be the first doctor on the block to do these new procedures. And one of the device companies that manufactured a permanent contact lens wanted to know what his secret was. How are you doing 10 cases a month when everybody else is doing 10 cases a year? And the doctor was like, I have her. <laughs> so they hired me to move back to the East Coast. I swore I would never go back to New Jersey, never say never, because that's where I ended up. <laughs> so that was, that was the big transition from trying to get a job in real estate dabbling as a retail salesperson, then going and hanging my cap as a freelance makeup artist and landing in ophthalmology. <laughs> so and people ask me all the time, how did that happen? And it all comes from that basic training in retail that teaches you to build relationships with people, which is something I'd always done my whole life. You know, yeah. I ran into, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead, go, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, when the internet happened, I started reconnecting with everyone. And one of my college friends that I reconnected with and I, when I moved to Florida, met for lunch. And I cracked up laughing because I said, I still can't believe we're sitting here and it's been years since we've seen each other. And he looked at me and he said, some people collect things I collect people and my jaw dropped because I have been saying that my entire life. I have 
letters from pen pals in third grade and love letters from, you know, guys in college. I saved everything, everything that has to do with people and the people themselves. You know, I, since I was 20 years old, I've always been that person that's like, Hey, you need something. I know a guy. <laughs> well, that's so, so, well, there's a lot there to unpack. I know. Um, first of all, what kind of car did you have that it took six months to find a dang door? I I, um, <laughs> I I was driving a Buick Skylark, a 1986 teal blue Buick Skylark, and they couldn't find an aftermarket door. And then once they found a door, they ordered the door lock and the door lock showed up the box. And when they opened it up, it was something else. So then once we had the door, we had to find a lock because the boxes were mislabeled. It was such a comedy of errors. I didn't have a car for six months. I had a rental car and someone stole my rental car. You know, you bring a whole new meaning to Hero's Arc where it looks more like a uh, the Atlantic Ocean during a hurricane with the waves <laughs> up and down that you've had. It's a... Uh, yeah. it, well, you know, it, it's just... You know, it, it, there's not a straight line between, you know where you, it, it, you know, if you said to sit and dream about this, you know, it reminds me a little bit. I mean, it's not as bad, but in that movie pursuit of happiness where, you know, Will Smith was the, was, the, yeah. and it just, he had so many, you know, you, you've hit so many valleys, but your positivity and stuff and your, and your ability to sort of make connections with other people have pulled you up and do those things. So that's, that's amazing. I just, you know, I got exhausted just listening to that, which, <laughs> but you've, you've got a lot of such a, so many different experiences. You could t- probably talk to anybody in just about any industry because, or anything, because you've got an experience that relates to that. You know something? Uh, and I wish I could remember the book because it's, I read this one sentence and it stuck with me. And the sentence was, uh, she always wanted to be the most interesting person you run into at a cocktail party. And that's me because I've, I've been an extrovert and I know a little bit about everything. I know just enough to be dangerous. But here's, I, I'd like to point something out that I'm actually proud of. When somebody veers into territory that I'm not familiar with, I don't fake it until I make it with my mouth talking to them because I know if I don't know what I'm talking about, I'm gonna damage my own credibility. And I always felt weird about that, but I had a girlfriend in LA who did the opposite and she was so full of whatever you wanna call it. We would go to parties and she would start talking to people about the stock market and politics and she was so uninformed and just made herself look so dumb. People saw through it so quickly. And I was the one with the substance because I would just there and nod and listen and learn. And I was so glad I did that because that served me well, especially once I went into ophthalmology because you're working with a lot of doctors and a lot of uh, scientists and engineers. And if you don't know what you're talking about, forget it. So I always am anxious to learn and uh, understand and ask a lot of questions and that's sort of how I get around that. I can start the conversation and then flip it around to get people to talk about themselves, which A, makes them feel better and B, makes me smarter. Well, it, and it's, you know, if you're in sales and as Dan Pink would say, just about everything's in sales, be it, you know, trying to sell yourself or a product. 
in that, you know, it should be about them. It should be about who you're talking to. And I, I do similar things. I have sort of a game I play with myself when I go in and meet with a customer is, you know, my goal is, you know, to talk less than they do in most cases, because, you know, we're given two ears and one mouth and we should, you know, use them appropriately accordingly. Um, Cause it's, you learn so much and, and then you, 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 you're adding this, it, it helped as a storyteller. It, it does a couple of things. One, it helps make that connection with your listener, with your audience. You've got that connection. You you're now making them feel important, but you're also learning about their environment, what their needs are, what their desires and stuff are. So that then you can see, is there something that you can, that you provide that can add value to them. It's not about selling them anything. Cause ideally if you find a need that they have and you've got something that can fill that need, then it, then it's really a, um, it, it's a, um, I'm honest, it's not a cooperation, but it's, it's, you're, you're both working towards the same thing, right? It's a partnership, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, you, you're an excellent partner, <laughs> for a lot of these things you know you you again you've learned so many different things and you seem to be a little bit of what i call a polymath you have a lot of different different interests and you like to learn so that you can have those conversations at least start it with just about anybody mm-hmm. and to your point about storytelling i think one of the best things that came out of getting a degree in english literature and understanding critical thinking and argument construction. For some reason, I just found that ability to pull analogies out of thin air to help people understand really complex things by making them simple and using real life examples. And as I was just saying that, the one example that popped into my head made me, I almost laughed. When I was working in that medical practice, Um, The surgeon was a type A and he just always had so much going on. It was always juggling and we all had a lot to do and there was always more being piled on. And so finally, one day I went into the administrator and I said, look, my plate is full. It's full. I can move the coleslaw. I can move the potato salad. I can slide the hot dog over there, but the plate is full. If we put anything else on it, the plate is going to break. It's China picnic ware, not ceramic or bone China. It's full. Stop. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. she just cracked up laughing, but she got it because a plate can only hold so much. Yeah. You know, and and I've met a lot of doctors and, and they're, and they're brilliant. But I'll, I'll, and it's the same challenge I find with a lot of technology people, brilliant people with, you know, uh, AI scientists, data scientists, things like that. But they can't relate to normal people. Their brain's not wired that way. They're, 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 they're sort of locked up into the, in, I call it text, text planning and in, in, in the nerdology of it. In that they, if they're talking to somebody else of the same level, man, the conversation is like, wow, okay, it's conversation flies. But if you're trying to talk to somebody that, that's a business owner or has a need, just goes on by, right? And, and there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of people do that. So my, my goal in life is to end text planning. And it sounds like you, you're sort of on a similar mission, mission, although in a different field in that, you know, doctors can sometimes, they call it bedside manner, call it whatever you want. But if you can't relate to the person that you're talking to and not dumbing it down, but explaining it, like I said, in an analogy in the way that they can make that connection to understand, mm-hmm. you're just not, you're not, you're not doing it right. 
Mm -hmm. um, and that's another, uh, another story just popped into my mind about that. And it was when I had to speak to patients. You know, I, this practice that I worked in was very high end. And it was at the point when LASIK had become relatively commoditized. So people started shopping for eye surgery by price. And when you get to that point, they'll throw up all kinds of objections because they don't want to tell you that they think it's too expensive. And I was talking to one of the patients who was very hesitant, and I could just tell there was something holding them back and they weren't telling the truth. So before, right before I was ready to close, I decided I'm just going to flip through their intake form. And all of a sudden, I noticed on the back of the page that one of the guy's hobbies was scuba diving. And with scuba diving, if your glass or your uh, goggles or your mask gets fogged up, you can't see anything. Or if your glass, if it's not a prescription mask, or if your glasses are underneath. So I used that because he was an, a, I think he was a postal worker. So I used that whole thing about scuba diving. That's just dangerous. You don't want to piss those people off. <laughs> so I said, I said, oh, you're a scuba diver. That's fascinating. Oh, I said, LASIK would make your life so much easier. You wouldn't have to worry about the prescription goggles or the class. That was the thing that it made it worth it for him. He found the value in not having to worry about his mask. And that's yeah, well, just because I actually read the sheet. Most people will take all the medical paperwork and just shove it in a folder. I said, yeah. you know, there's got to be something here I can use. Yeah, that's, and, I mean, that's the very, that's the, A, I'm a certified diver, and that's the very first thing they teach you, and there's how to clear your mask, because if you can't see, you're, you're in a trouble, but, but, um, you know, I do the same thing on LinkedIn a lot, and I call it LinkedIn stalking, is trying to find something in some common area, if I'm going to meet with somebody that, what do I know, about, you know, they're golfer, there's something like this, okay, which sort of turns me on, to, okay, here's some analogies I can use if I need to, which is what you did, you used a perfect analogy to do that, so you take you take from your experiences and in, in all these different aspects and stuff, and you're able to sort of relate that to the person you're communicating with to, to borrow mm -hmm. a friend of mine, uh, for Lila Smith, the communication partner, you're sort of learning how they need to assimilate it, what they're familiar with and all these other things. So, you know, good on you. I, I you know, you're, you're a living example of what I preach all the time. What, yes. what back in your, back in your Hollywood days, what, I mean, was there anything there that you took out to sort of help you become a better storyteller? That's a really good question. Um, I think just from watching all of the production, and, and I worked on a couple of feature films, and to me, that was uh, just a living, breathing example of collaboration, cooperation, compromise, and um, creativity, the four C's, because all it started out as was some guy's script, 120 pages of, and the next thing you know, you've got some guy who thinks he's a monk on a pillar with a crane five feet in the mud, making circles, trying to figure out how to get the shot without losing the truck because we were in the middle of a massive storm. And so, like I said, compromise, creativity, it just, it put all the pieces together for me. And, um, and I think part of my challenge, because I love to tell stories, 
It's not that I talk too much, but I give so much detail, my attention to detail in storytelling. Sometimes I have to pull it back a little bit. And you see that in a, an example in a movie is instead of having a wide shot with both people in the frame, it's an extreme close up of somebody saying a really important sentence. And all you see is their head and their mouth moving and they say what they're supposed to say. So it kind of showed me focus on what's important. Some don't try not to get too caught up in the details because as you said at the beginning, I exhausted you <laughs> with my history. See, I still do it even when I try not to. But well, the two ears, one mouth is was the best thing. And, well, and I mean, to be, to be fair, you had you you were drawing a, a timeline and in, in the journey, and you gave me sort of the here's the here's the uh, the cliff note version if, in in, yeah. in video and audio form. But but to yeah. your point, I have I suffer the same thing. Left to my own devices, I like to give enough detail to give the listener or reader. Here's what I'm seeing. Here's my vision. It has background. It has texture. It has all these other things, mm-hmm. which there's a time and a place for that. If you, if you like read, uh, like I always like reading the Harry Potter things and she was very good about sort of giving these Tom Clancy was really great. Cause I'm a, I'm a spy nerd in that describing these different, these different backgrounds. So it was like, you were there, right? You're trying to pull yourself into that scene. Mm-hmm. And sometimes in those things where you have that it's, it's necessary. But mm-hmm. in, in a lot of times when you're just trying to make that connection, do these other things, then you have to sort of give the, again, the close up with the mouth moving <laughs> and words coming out that here's the important yeah, thing yeah. I want you to do. So it is a challenge. You're right. And I would rather have that problem being able to trim and edit things out. Although sometimes editing is like, you know, which kid do I get rid of? Um, but then to try to pull something out of somebody, which is just, you know, it's hard to communicate with those people for me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know when I was a kid I believe it or not as a child I had so much energy and I was so full of life and all I wanted was for people to be friends with me I was bouncing off the walls not ADD or anything just just a type A I had a really hard time making friends. So while my brother and sister were out playing with the neighbor and climbing trees and playing soccer and breaking bones, I was sitting on top of my dresser with my back to the window reading books. And and I think that's where my uh, detail problem came from because that's what happens when you read a book. They're so full of so much rich detail because writers write. And not all writers write to deduce, to use the least amount of words to get a story across. Some writers write because they want to fill the page. And so you get all different kinds of styles of writing. And the one that I was drawn to was the, were the ones that created these rich tapestries with pictures and detail and flavors and colors. And yeah, so um, uh, here's an example of storytelling. Um, I'm also quite resourceful. And when I want it, don't want to do something, I won't do it. And I've actually wrote an article on LinkedIn and told the story, but I'll tell it here verbally. Uh, my senior year in high school, the project was to read a book. And the book was Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce, which is some of the thickest, most difficult to read prose I've ever seen in my life. I even Just revisited it. Good Lord. <laughs> I revisited revisited it as an adult and I still can't read it but that was the senior project because I was in honors English and I said oh my god what am I going to do what am I going to do so there was this chapter we went over in class one day and she's like this chapter is all about 
uh, food. And, and the title of the chapter was Less Dragonians. And she pointed out that Less Dragonians are basically cannibals. <laughs> like, oh no, but I said, well, this is really about food. So what can I do to write a paper that's gonna wow people without reading the book? Mm -hmm. So I decided that I would go through the chapter and pull out every word that had to do with flavor, food, eating, kitchens, restaurants, whatever. And I pulled it all out and I made a list. And then I just started randomly moving stuff around, went to the library, got a bunch of Bon Appetit magazines and cookbooks and started looking for recipes with the ingredients that were on my list. And I made a restaurant menu from a fake restaurant with the red leather binder and the gold tassels. I handed it in, fingers crossed. Oh. And the teacher gave me an A plus and said it was the most creative thing she'd ever seen. Thank goodness. Wow. I, I didn't see that coming because I'm saying, you know, coming up with your opening statement, Paul was enjoying Ralph's eyeballs, which were sauteed. And I'm just, <laughs> you talked about candle. I went to a very dark place. I'm sorry. It's Monday morning. No, uh, no. So, so go ahead. And so, and, and the funny thing is, I also love food. So this is just, that's why it was so easy for me. To me, that turned a project that could have been the bane of my existence and the thing that ruined my senior year in high school into fun because I do calligraphy as a hobby. So I did the whole menu in calligraphy and, and I love food. So to this day, I remember and I probably don't even say it right, but I remember the, when I first read the word mulligatawny, which is an Indian soup. And when I was working for one of the companies that I work for, I was in North Jersey in a very mixed neighborhood. And I found an Indian restaurant and I ordered the soup because I wanted to see what it tasted like. Did it meet your expectation? Yes, it did. It was very, very good. So I, I want to go back um to this collector of people mm -hmm. so here's a fun question okay who am i who am i on the shelf next to who's next to me on the shelf of people you've collected the shelf of <laughs> hmm. um that's actually a real you know what i'm gonna put you right up there at number two the number Good. one person that i'm connected to on linkedin where you would be next to them on the shelf is steve porcaro okay and i'll tell you why I've been working with him now for almost 13 years. When I got laid off from that position that moved me back to New Jersey, I had already joined LinkedIn right before I left Los Angeles, but I wasn't really using it. I didn't really understand electronic networking. I was still in my human mode. And so when I got laid off and I needed to find another job, I started searching groups and I saw a group called Medical Device Sales Professionals. So I joined it. And when I joined it, it said the owner of the group will approve your request shortly or whatever. And I got an email from Steve saying, hey, my name is Steve. I own the group. I'd love to talk to you, find out what you're looking for, find out what makes you tick and see how I can help you. <gasps> In 2008, that was unheard of. So I called him on the phone and we ended up on the phone for like you and I almost two hours just talking about everything. And he listened to my story. He heard, you know, sort of the rundown of my resume. 
And he said, wow, he goes, you are not like a typical medical device salesperson. You are very different. He goes, you have a really diverse background and you're equally balanced between sales and marketing. And you've got a great personality. He's like, I want to stay in touch with you. And I think I might even be able to use your help. Wow. So that's how our relationship was born. And to, for that, I am so grateful. He's an executive coach. He runs a whole bunch of different programs for everybody from presidents and CEOs and boards of company to improve their sales processes and sales teams to helping people who are outside of the medical device field to break into it. And I've become his poster child for people who break into medical devices from another industry. <laughs> Wow. Well, I, I'm honored to be uh, you know, up there. It was, it was just a sort of an interesting sort of where you would, how you line a collection. My, my daughter likes to do things by colors and season. So I, <laughs> this was a, this a little bit better, but it's just a visual I had. Okay. We're putting people up on a shelf for collecting them for nefarious you're, you're, purposes. You're on the networking shelf because you're the only other person that I really developed a a good solid relationship where we've had more than one conversation on the phone or via email because you know there are a lot of people that seem interesting and you connect to them and then you never hear from them again which is my pet peeve if there's a reason why you wanted to connect to me say something conversely don't just try to sell me something before we've built a relationship so I mean you gotta yeah, kind of there was a post um what was it somebody put a post um oh the LinkedIn guru uh uh, um, posted something today about, you know, ghosting, posting and ghosting. <laughs> and I said, well, what's the purpose in that? You know, it should be a conversation, which means you've got it. You know, I, I can post something. I want to engage with people's thoughts, you know, maybe, and maybe I can improve my thought process and stuff. I mean, my, you know, I have values of which I will not vary from, but mm -hmm. opinions and stuff can change based on new information. You know, I'm kind of, I like to say to stay informed, as you said. So I, I think it's very appropriate. So if, if somebody, you mentioned also about somebody, they created a job for you. So if, if you're out there today and writing your own job description for your, whatever your next job would be, what would that be? What's your, what's your job description? Hmm. That's a great question. I really enjoy working with people. So I already know that it's got to be something that's client facing, whether it's business to business, business to consumer, doesn't, doesn't really matter. My thing is, you know, I enjoy medicine. I enjoyed aesthetics. I enjoyed makeup because they're all things that make a difference in people's lives that they can understand. It's not something like, you know, rocket science. Yes, rocket science will improve people's lives, but not directly. So I know that um, that was a good fit for me. I really enjoy the variety of traveling to different offices. I like having doctors as clients more than having them as a boss. <laughs> so um, I, I learned that working in the medical practice was a great start, but it wasn't the perfect fit for me. And I was very happy once I got to corporate America. So I'm not opposed to startups. I have to get a little bit more selective. I want to tell you one story related to that, and then I'll get back to answering your question. When I was working for that company that made the permanent contact lens, we were sitting in a, in a conference room at our sales training, and the director of the meeting said, everyone in this room has something in common. And we all sat there going, hmm. And then he broke his pause and he said, 
you're all risk takers. And I laughed because I uh, perceive myself as extremely risk averse. <laughs> I'm like, me, risk taker, ha ha ha, not quite. Wouldn't you know it, 11 weeks later, I got laid off. So yeah, that was a pretty big risk. I didn't pick a startup that was the, you know, whatever. So anyway, um, I, you know, brand ambassador is what I do, but it's not the title that I'm looking for. Because, you know, like you said earlier, everyone is in sales. I know another sales coach, that's the name of his book. And uh, it's true. I really enjoy um, presenting information, asking questions, building relationships. So for me, sales and marketing and account management, that sort of hybrid role where it covers all three things is where it would be the best fit for me. Cause I'm not a hunter. I'm obviously a farmer. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like more you'd be, you know, if, if you created a role and I've seen a couple of these come back by saying like as a chief storyteller role. Mm. what you'd be great at and somebody that wants to make a difference in people's lives because a, a true storyteller wants to do that they want to they want to impact change somehow maybe it's thought maybe it's actions or maybe it's just simply get them to to feel something that maybe they haven't felt for a while or make a connection with somebody else i mean that's what a true storyteller does i mean in my aspect my goal is to leave every conversation where we're better off for having that conversation. So, you know, through the storytelling and stuff. And, and if I, anytime I'm presenting or, or talking, if I can have one person that has made a change or connected with to go do that, then the whole thing's been successful. Even in a room of 10,000, if there's one person that I've impacted and, and they come up to me, like when I did my Ted talk, you know, I was, I was pretty down on myself on the Ted talk because it was a different track than inside what my mind had played the trailer in my mind was way different than, than what I thought the execution of the movie came out. There was a good editors and stuff that came in later, but somebody came out to me, a young man came out to me. He had this note and he clearly he'd been drawn to diagram of really the only slide I had and was asking me these questions and stuff on that. So I said, no matter how bad I feel about not living up to the expectation I had in my head, I've impacted this one young man made it all worth it. So that for me, that's that's mine. And in in the podcast, if somebody listens to it and it's impacting them, done something, then like my dog right now, my dog's heard that line before. Then it's made it all all worth it. So, um, I, you know, it, it, to anybody that's listening to this, you know, if you, if you want that chief storyteller, if you want somebody that's the people collector that can talk, you could airdrop them anywhere, and they'd be able to have a conversation and make somebody's life better and make a, like I said, a relationship to do that, then you need to definitely contact Barry because she's the person to do that. How's that for an endorsement? Does that work? <laughs> That's awesome. And you know what? You and I have so much in common. So many of the things that you've said today are like things that are on my LinkedIn profile. Like in my summary, it says, I like to leave things better than I found them. And the whole thing with relationship building, you know, I've collected practice administrators from other practices that I'm still in touch with, people that I worked with in jobs from 25 years ago that I'm still in touch with, who send me a fan letter when we reconnected. I was like, wow. And when you feel that, when you know that you've made that impact or become memorable to one person and it made a difference, it's so gratifying. You know, I, 
am so grateful for so much stuff. Sometimes I have a hard time showing joy, but I'm always grateful and hopeful. And I try to share that piece of me with people because a lot of times you go into a business or with one of your clients and someone's having a bad day and you can say one thing that'll turn it around. And when you hear, oh my God, you just made my day, thank you. Or you've made my life so much easier or I never understood that, I get it now. When that light bulb goes off, it is the best feeling in the world. That's a great end scene type thing. We'll just do that. <laughs> <laughs> so how, what's the best way to get a hold of you, Barry? Um, I'm on LinkedIn all the time. So you can get me on LinkedIn. You can email me. My email address is barry.rubin, B-A-R-I dot R-U-B-I-N at outlook.com. Or my phone number is on my LinkedIn profile. You can get that from there too. I'm not going to put it out on a video. <laughs> oh, that'll be fine. Yeah, this is not a dating show. So, uh, <laughs> Thanks a lot for hanging in there through the technical difficulties and all that. And, and thanks for the, again, there are a lot of things that we share a lot more things that I think that make us different. And, and when you can meet those people in that, then it's definitely worth having sort of that conversation again. So Barry, thank you for being a guest here and uh, good luck in everything that you do in the future. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm so grateful for you and it was a pleasure. I'm, I'm really honored that you chose me to be a guest. Cool. Bye. Bye-bye.